Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining with us for this week's podcast. Today, Clyde Glass is beginning our new series, Seeds of Transformation. And the best way to know what's going on at Southview is by checking out our weekly viewpoint, and you can find a link to that viewpoint in the episode description of this podcast, or you can go on Realm and join the group Southview Family Updates, and that will make sure you're always getting the weekly viewpoint in your inbox. If you're new with us here in this digital space, we'd love to hear from you. And you can find an online connection card at the bottom of that viewpoint, along with a prayer request form so that we can support and join you in prayer. And additionally, you can always find us on Instagram and Facebook. But now, today, no matter how you're joining with us, may each of our hearts be open and expectant because God is here and Jesus invites us to bring all that we are and all that we're currently carrying to him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let's seek the face of God together. Hello, friends. I am so thankful that we have the gift of gathering here and coming to this word that God has given us and let it lead us to receive from Christ in the table of communion. And so thankful as well for those joining online. Great to be joined together. Uh, But just before we come to God's word, I want to take a few minutes to respond to several of the questions uh, that we've kind of been most commonly been asked about how we're moving forward in my coming retirement from South Hugh and in our interim plans. So so let me kind of just walk through four questions we're getting fairly often. Uh, First question often is, how is our weekend preaching going to be covered while we're in this interim period after I leave and before our new senior pastor is in place. And why you know that our preaching is going to be covered by our own pastors and other teachers who commonly have often taught with us here, many of whom are from our congregation. And this includes individuals from Ambrose University, local ministries, other churches. And our weekly preachers really up through launch weekend of September, is just about finalized, those individuals. And, and also, our preaching schedule for next year. And, and that's a schedule that really details and lays out the biblical text and topics that we're going to be studying each week. And next year, it's going to include the book of James and Philippians. All of that's going to be laid out up to next summer by the time I conclude. So we're going to be well-fed from God's Word in the coming months as we walk through this new season. And then a second common question is, so Clyde, what are you doing after you retire from Southview? And that question at times is followed with, you just golfing? Which tells me for one, you clearly have not seen me golf. But for Jillian and I, we do hope to have a bit more time to visit family down under and in the States, but I want to be clear on this. I'm retiring as Southview's senior pastor, but I'm not retiring from ministry or life. Because as followers of Jesus, we never retire from ministry or life. Really, regardless of what our vocation has been in the past, we are always called to serve Christ until he calls us home. Amen? Approaching it in that same way. So Jillian and I, we're praying and discerning about what our next serve will be. And really, I, I kind of believe that my ministry chapter of leading a larger church is concluding. And we truly don't yet know 
what our next chapter of ministry is. So this is really kind of an unusual season for us, but it really is a great place to be. It is, because for the past 38 years of ministry, we've pretty much always known what's coming next. So this is prompting us to trust God in a different, in a really good way. So we're really praying with open hands about how and where we can serve. And I can say in this that really two of the areas of ministry that God has put on my heart, particularly in recent years, one is just supporting and encouraging other pastors. You know, especially those from smaller churches who don't have a, a team alongside of them to support them. And then also supporting other smaller churches here overseas that really don't have the resources that a larger church has. And again, I don't specifically know what that might look like, but I want to share with you, that's what God's put on my heart. And, and let me add this. Jillian and I have no plans to move from Calgary. We'll, we will see with open hands how God leads us in this, but we're planning to be here in Calgary. And, and that leads, I think, to a third common question we're asked. So Clyde, are you still going to be coming to Southview? And what you know, Southview will always be a home for us. Our hearts are here. That, that won't change. But as we've been encouraged from many other pastors and churches who have gone through this kind of transition, it will help Southview move forward if for an extended season, I just pull back for a while. Because truly, having me kind of get out of the room for a while, it's a good thing. It really allows Southview to move forward during both this coming interim season and once our new senior pastor is in place. And, and you might know, we've had other pastors take a similar step for a season as they handed over the reins of leadership in their ministries, and it's been very helpful, very healthy in this. And we're approaching it in the same way. And so this is the last question, fourth question. Many of you asked, so how are you doing in all this, Clyde? And I want you to know, I'm at peace, uh, believing that this transition is of God, for, both for us and for Southview. I truly believe that. And I'm trusting God about what's next for us as a couple and for us as a church family. And I do want you to know, we feel so supported and loved by our elders, by our fellow staff members, by you, our church family. We do. And just thank you for your grace to us in this. But all of this, it really also comes with a mingling of grief. It, it does. And that just kind of hits me every so often. So if at odd times I choke up, I want you to know, okay, that's why in this. So we're going to just continue to try to update you on all of our plans moving forward uh, together and with our succession and then search processes that we're working through. And just in line with that, can I also encourage you, as Brett just did, and how good to see him, can I encourage you to take the survey that's been put out by our succession team? And again, you can find it by using this QR code. You can go to our website uh, and fill it out there. Or you can, this evening, 
grab a hard copy if you prefer that, just back at the back corners or go to the information center. We have them there as well if you'd prefer doing that as well. Because we want your input on how we move forward and as, as an expression of God's kingdom, right? Together. Okay, that was a lot, but I want to be clear in this. None of that counts against the sermon time. <laughs> right? The clock starts now for the sermon. All right. But let's pray before we do turn to God's word. Will you pray with me? And Father, we ask for your guidance and blessing us as a church family, your church family, as we seek your wisdom in all of our steps in serving you. And we ask, Father, as well, would you please guide us as we come now to this word you've blessed us with? And by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you teach us, mold us, and transform us in line with your will? This we pray in your Son's incredible name. And all God's people say, Amen. Today, we begin a new teaching series uh, called Seeds of Transformation in which we are returning to the epistle of 1 John. Now, as we have noted many, many times, one of the foundational elements of all of the New Testament letters is the reality of the new identity we have when we've turned in faith to and followed Jesus. And maybe for some of you, that faith began last Easter weekend. Because... The reality is, through faith in Christ, we become a child of the God of creation, which is so hard for us to grasp. But it's that new identity that is to mold, to guide, to transform us in the way we live in every other area of our lives. So in the second part of John's first epistle, John provides us guidance about how we live out that new identity in our personal lives and in our life together as a church family. Because again, it is that new identity in Christ with the indwelling presence of the power of his Holy Spirit that provides the basis for how we change. It's that that provides the seeds of transformation in our lives. Okay, so just to remind us of the context within which John wrote this letter of 1 John. As, as John shares in the letter, he says that he was compelled by the Holy Spirit to write this letter because there were these other teachers around in local churches who were trying to deceive and mislead God's people. So these deceivers were trying to really woo the followers of Christ to desire false purposes, empty sources of meaning. And, and their false teaching was splitting the churches in ancient Asia Minor in two. And so part of John's purpose in writing this letter is to lay out here what is the true faith, the true knowledge of God, and how then that truth transforms how we live. Okay, so with all that in our minds, would you turn with me in your Bible to the letter of 1 John. Now, it's right near the end of Scripture, just before the book of Revelation there. As we consider together what this transformed life with Jesus looks like. And we're going to read an extended section of this epistle 
together today. And as we do, remember, friends, this is a word of God. And we're going to pick it up in chapter 3 in verse 11. And John writes this. For this is a message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who is of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers and sisters. Verse 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Verse 23, and this is God's commandment, that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another just as he has commanded us. Did you happen to notice a recurring theme in John's exhortation here? Yes, yeah, we've noted before, the Apostle John who wrote this letter, he's often called the Apostle of Love. What a great title. And therefore, many refer to this letter from John as the Epistle of Love. And it's because no other book in Scripture talks about love as often as 1 John. About one in every 50 words is some form of the word love. So there are 52 mentions of love in just the five short chapters of 1 John. And John declares in this letter that love is the evidence of salvation. It is the evidence of this new identity, new life in Jesus. Look again what he says in verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because, what do we do? We love the brothers and sisters, our fellow followers of Christ. And then John declares in chapter 4 that God himself is love. Not just that God is loving, but that our God is love which shouldn't really surprise us because Jesus himself said, as the Gospel of Matthew records, on this hangs all of the teaching of the law in the prophets, all of it. Just two things, love God, love people. All of the other commands and encouragements of Scripture, all of them fit under those two exhortations to love. So this all finds fruition, expression, in love. That's why the Apostle Paul would declare in Philippians 1 verse 9, this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. That's why Jesus would explain in the Gospel of John this time, in John chapter 13 verse 35, Jesus said, by this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And and that's why, as we're going to see in a couple of weeks, John puts it quite bluntly back in 1 John 4, verse 8, where he writes, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. 
You cannot claim to know this God and not be loving because the heart of who he is is love. So with all that, let me just suggest this from Scripture, friends. Nothing has more power on earth to reveal the face of God and to reveal the truth about the amazing grace of God than when the people of God demonstrate in tangible ways the love of God. Let me say that again. Nothing has more power on earth to reveal the face of God and reveal the truth about the amazing grace of God than when the people of God demonstrate in tangible ways the love of God. That's why the Apostle Paul would declare that the first fruit of walking in relationship with God, what is it? It's love. And you really, you could say that the bad news about this is that the opposite of that is true as well. Nothing has more power to distort the face of God and really to confuse the message of amazing grace than when the people of God who claim to know the love of God do not demonstrate that love in concrete, manifested ways. A lack of love, friends, it has incredible power to discredit the good news of Jesus that we preach. Many years ago, the renowned atheist Bertrand Russell, in his book that's titled, Why I'm Not a Christian, said this. The intolerance that has spread over the world, in his view, with the advent of Christianity, is one of its most curious features, given its message of forbearing love. History attests, according to Russell, that religious people in general, and Christians in particular, tend to be narrow. And then to support his argument, Russell appeals to historic examples of really that narrowness, lack of tolerance. And so he points, for one, to the inquisitions of the Middle Ages, which is a pretty obvious place to point. And then he lists other historic examples of supposed followers of Jesus who lived in ways completely counter to the love of Jesus. And then Russell's conclusion from his own historic observations is this. Instead of expanding people's capacity for life, joy, and mystery, religion in general, and Christianity in particular, seems to shrink it. So Russell dismissed it all because of that. And so do many others. Because when we abandon love, even if it's with the intent to get a good thing or result, we ruin the good thing we're trying to get. And we lose our credibility, we lose our believability as kingdom people of Christ. That's why, as the symbol we have as a church here at Southview expresses that. Again, just to walk through it as we say, those three dimensions of up, in, and out. At the, at the heart of who we are is the cross of Christ. And, and that is that up relationship, walking in relationship with him. And we know, therefore, because of that relationship, as we gather together, we are 
inwardly to love one another. But it's not to end there because then we are to go out with that incredible love of Christ in every dimension as the arrows express. And to live in that way calls for certain elements to be at the core of it as they have been with the body of Christ across the ages. So the word of God, for one, the W, has to be at the heart of what we do. And then prayer, listening to God, speaking to God, has to be essential in this life of faith. And all of it has to be empowered through the Spirit. The Spirit of God empowering, leading us. And all of that, if we do live that out, its central expression, Scripture says, is to be love. To be love. That's why the Apostle Paul memorably put it this way. This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 2, where Paul wrote this. If I have all faith so as to remove mountains, That'd be a spiritual gift, wouldn't it be? If we could make the Rockies shift a few miles, even if I had faith to do that, but I didn't have love, it's meaningless. I am nothing, Paul says. Really, in other words, you might be operating in great faith, and you might even be seeing dramatic results, but if you aren't loving You've completely missed the point. And it's all then just kind of nothing. And and that's why in these coming weeks, we are going to be receiving John's guidance about walking and living in authentic love. And again, not just in some mystical, ethereal sense, but a love that's expressed in just tangible ways to those around us. in a story I've shared with you before, but which I find just so compelling. Uh, Professor and sociologist Tony Campolo shares about a trip he took to Hawaii for a conference he was attending. And it really is one of my favorite pictures of, of what it looks like when the message of Jesus, the kingdom of God, is just lived out by ordinary people like us. And really, you know, I don't by any means agree with all of the teaching of Dr. Campolo, but I think this story hits home. And as he tells us, Dr. Campola flew from Philadelphia, Honolulu for this conference. And having crossed way too many time zones on the trip, Campola found himself awake and needing breakfast at 3.30 a.m. local time. And so he ended up in this kind of greasy dive of a place, ordering a donut and coffee. And Campola writes this. As I sat there munching my donut and sipping my coffee at 3.30 in the morning, The door suddenly opened, swung wide, and to my discomfort, in marched eight or nine provocatively dressed and rather boisterous prostitutes. It was a small place, and they sat on either side of me. Their talk was garrulous, loud, and crude, and I felt completely out of place. I was just about to make my getaway when I heard the woman next to me say, tomorrow's my birthday. I'll be 39. One of the other women tore into her. So, what do you want me to do about it? Want me to throw you a party, bake you a cake, sing happy birthday? And the first shot back, come on. Why do you have to be so mean? I'm just telling you, you don't have to put me down. I don't want anything. I've never had a birthday party in my whole life. Why should you give me one? Why should I have one now? I'm just saying. Campolo hangs around until they all leave. 
And then he asked the guy that runs the place if those women came in every night. Yeah, the guy says. Campolo asked, well, one of them said it was her birthday tomorrow. Does she come in? And the guy behind the counter says, yeah, that's Agnes. Agnes is one of those people who's really nice and kind, but I don't think anybody has ever done anything nice and kind for her. So Campolo asks if he could throw that one prostitute a big birthday party the next night. The counter guy gets excited about the idea too, wants to help in making the arrangements. So the next day, Campolo decorates the diner, the chef bakes a cake, somebody gets the word out of the surprise party on the street. And the night comes, and Campolo is in this dive of a diner, waiting. And this is how Campolo describes the scene. We decorated that diner from one end to the other. We had it looking great. Word of the party must have spread pretty far because by 3.15 a.m., every prostitute in Honolulu seemed to be in that place. It was wall-to-wall prostitutes and me. And at 3.30 on the dot, the door of the diner swung open, and in came Agnes and her friend. I have everybody ready, because after all, I'm kind of the MC of the affair. And when they came in, we all shouted, happy birthday. Never have I seen a person so flabbergasted, so stunned, so shaken. Her mouth fell open. Her legs seemed to buckle a bit. Her friend grabbed her arm to steady her. As she was leading her to one of the stools along the counter, we all started singing happy birthday to her. And as we came to the end of our singing, with happy birthday, dear Agnes, happy birthday to you, her eyes welled up. And when the birthday cake with all the candles was carried out, that's when she lost it. And she started sobbing. Harry, the big guy behind the counter, gruffly mumbled, blow out the candles, Agnes, blow out the candles. And then he handed her a knife and said, Cut the cake, Agnes, cut the cake. Agnes looked down at that cake, and without taking her eyes off it, she slowly and softly said, Look, Carrie, is it okay with you if I, is it okay if I keep this cake for a little while? Is it okay if we don't eat it right away? Harry shrugged, answered, Well, sure, Agnes, that's fine. You want to keep the cake? You keep the cake. Then looking at me, she said, I just lived down the street a couple of doors. I, I just want to take the cake home, okay? I'll, I'll be right back, honest. And she got off her stool. She picked up that cake, and she carried it out of the diner like it was the holy grail. And when the door closed behind her, there was a stunned silence in the place. And not knowing what else to do, I broke the silence by saying, what do you say we pray together? (laughs) Looking back on it now, it seems more than a little strange that a Christ follower from eastern Pennsylvania would be leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes in a diner in Honolulu at 3.30 in the morning. But I prayed. I prayed for Agnes. I prayed for her salvation. I prayed that her life would be transformed and that her eyes would be open to God's incredible love for her. And when I finished, 
Harry leaned over, and with a trace of hostility in his voice, he said, Hey, you never told me you were a preacher. What kind of preacher are you anyway? What church do you belong to? And in one of those moments when just the right words come, I answered him quietly. I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. To which Harry replied, no, you don't. There's no church like that. I go to a church like that. You know, I would guess for many of us, uh, Jesus in the message never really sounded or looked like that. And, and let's acknowledge this. Let's acknowledge there's a danger in taking that kind of stuff. The, the danger that Scripture even warns us about is that in our desire to express the love of God in tangible, extravagant ways, we could get overwhelmed by and really drawn into the sin of others. That's an actual danger. Scripture warns us about that, about finding ourselves ensnared. But there's another danger, and it's just as significant, that we so fear being caught up in the sin of others that we build walls to protect ourselves. And though it might not be our intent, those walls really become a fort within which we effectively hide and from which the world can never see the shining light of Christ. So becoming a fort, it's not the solution. So a question really is, so how do we find the balance? How, how do we live and love that way? How do we both really protect our saltiness without hiding our light? And I really think Scripture gives us several ingredients, we could call them, that help us walk in this way of expressing the love of Jesus. So we're just going to look at one of them today, and then we're going to look at a few more next weekend together. So a first ingredient to love in this way is we need the right heart. The right heart. What do you mean by that? Again, listen again to what Paul says as he puts it this way in Philippians 1 verse 9. Paul said, it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Now, a key word in that verse is abound, and it's really actually a very colorful word when you get down into the meaning in the original Greek, because in the original language, that word abound means to exceed, to overflow, to kind of like a fountain, overflow and just splash on whoever it is that gets close. Can you picture that? So when... Paul, in Philippians 1.9, prays that our love would abound still more and more. Paul's not simply praying that we would love each other or that we would love our neighbors more and more. No. Although those things certainly would happen if our love is abounding, Paul here means something different than that. And it's this. That the love of God that is resident inside of us 
through Christ's Holy Spirit would begin to overflow from within us and just kind of indiscriminately begin to splash over on all who are near us or come close to us. Here's the point. Whatever characterizes this kind of love, it is marked, friends, by its indiscriminate nature. It doesn't pick and choose. It really, you could say, splashes on all. It overflows on all who encounter it. And that is what the right heart looks like. Now, author Brendan Manning tells a story of going to an airport with his wife, Rosalind, to catch a flight. And at the airport, they're approached here by a teenage girl who comes up, pins an unwanted flower on both their jackets, and then asks for a donation to support her mission. And when pressed by Brannon to name her mission, she acknowledges that she is part of the Unification Church, which originally was led by the infamous Pastor Sung Young Moon. Now, Brennan's first thoughts were, I'm against that. But I'm not against her. And he saw her as this lost, naive, vulnerable, deceived, but very sincere young woman. And so Brennan said to her, I deeply admire your commitment and fidelity to your conscience. I mean, you are out here doing what you really believe in. And you are a challenge to anyone who claims that name Christian. And then Rosalind then took it a step further and stepped forward and embraced this young girl. And Brennan kind of got caught up in the moment, embraced them both. And in the middle of this embrace, this girl asked, are you Christians? And when they said yes, she lowered her head and began to cry. And after a moment, she said, you're the first Christians who've been nice to me. Most look at me with contempt. Some scream at me, tell me I'm possessed. One woman hit me with her Bible. But you show me a different way. Let me tell you what they showed her. They showed her a glimpse of the face of Jesus, of the love of Jesus. Admittedly, it was just a glimpse. I mean, she didn't fall down and believe in Jesus. But maybe one day, when the lies of what she was living in began to kind of unravel and not work and fall apart, maybe that day she'd remember the simple encounter she had with the love of God. Because abounding love, it's indiscriminate. It just kind of splashes, overflows on whoever gets around it. And and they didn't express love to that girl because she was so lovable. It rather, it was the love of God flowing from within them and out upon her. And that again, that's the right heart. And it enables us then to keep our savor, our saltiness, without hiding our light. Just think what Jesus said about this. This is in the Gospel of Luke. In in Luke chapter 6, in verse 32, Jesus said this, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. 
Can I paraphrase that a bit? If you only love those who agree with you, what benefit is that? If you only love those who agree with your views on politics, on religion, on theology, on the environment, on COVID, let's say, what benefit is that to you? I mean, sinners love those who agree with them. Verse 35, but love your enemies. Love those who disagree with you. Try that, and your reward will be great. Because friends, to love this way, to love as Jesus loved, we need the right heart. And that heart is an indiscriminate, a heart of abounding love. Now next weekend, we're going to look at other ingredients that John and Scripture really point to as a means for loving others the way Jesus loves, the way he loves us. But we're going to pause here, and we're going to come and receive from the love of Jesus in this table. Because, praise God, he is present here with us. And by his spirit, he wants you to receive an expression of his love in this meal. And so we come, we lift the cup, and we together break the bread, and we call out to our Father, Father, would you cause this to be spiritual food for us? How we thank you for your spirit within us, and we pray now as we eat and drink, we'd be fed by Jesus in this. And we ask it together, and again, all God's people say, amen. So I invite you, friends, to take the cup that you received when you came in, just push down that tab and pull it back to get at the bread. What does this kind of abundant, abounding love look like? It looks like the body of Christ broken for you. So take and receive from his love. Let's eat together. And then with the cup. And at the cross, you could say, the love of Jesus splashed out as his blood poured out. So great was his love, his treasuring of you. Because the blood of Christ, it was poured out for you, beloved. So receive from him. Would you pray with me? Oh, our Father, we know we cannot fully grasp the wonder of the new identity you've given us. We know we cannot grasp the extent of your son's sacrifice on the cross, the power of his resurrection, the wonder of his love for us. So I pray, Father, by your grace, and even through this week, you would guide us in recognizing, receiving, and walking in the love of your son. Cause us, Father, to be instruments of your salt and light and love in this world, we pray, through the power of your spirit. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Will you stand with me, friends? And I do encourage you to join us next weekend because we're going to look at part two of this week's message and look at some of these other ingredients together. 
and want you to remind you in this, our gathering isn't over. This is a time to kind of, we transition to hanging out, time for fellowship. And if you are a newcomer with us, I do encourage you to stop by the Newcomer Center. But now as you walk in this week, whatever this week is going to hold for you, and here's the thing, our God knows exactly what it's going to hold for you. So now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of his Holy Spirit this week, you may abound in hope. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. Let's walk in that grace. Amen.